So how many of you actually like watching commercials? I don't mean just during the Super Bowl. I mean actually like commercials. So I can't, I can't say that I'm, I'm a big fan of commercials. You know, I mean, we, I don't watch a ton of TV. The, the shows that I watch on online sometimes will have those commercials. And, but, but commercials fascinate me because it is, it is a study in like mass manipulation. Like you know what's coming with the commercial. You know that the commercial is set up purposefully to manipulate into wanting something, and you're trying to tell yourself, I don't want that, I don't need that, but it still gets you. Like, I know that I don't need uh, one of those Doritos Locos tacos from Taco Bell, like the Cool Ranch, but I watch one of those commercials, and I, and I want one. I mean, it makes me want one. When I watch a, a Dodge Ram commercial, and I hear Sam Elliott's voice, you guys know what I'm talking about, like that manly voice, like I want to get up off my couch, I want to go punch a bear, I want to go buy a truck and go haul some dirt. Like it, it gets me. And, and, and we understand that, like commercials have this way of like manipulating it even when we know exactly what it's doing. And so it's right there, right in front of us. And that's the funny thing about human nature. And the promise of things like health and beauty and success, wealth, status, that image of being a man, the, the enjoyment and excitement of entertainment or food, uh, the, the meaning and purpose, and anything that's sort of being offered to us will draw us in, even when the promises being held out seem a little shallow. Maybe we can kind of see through the manipulation because we're drawn to those things. We want those things. Those things are appealing to us. There's a, there's a great parody from The Onion. If you're familiar with The Onion, it has a great parody of sort of the, the advertising market and how even when stuff is sold to us in this ridiculous manner, we still, because we're so drawn to these things, we'll still fall for it. So here's a little clip from an article from The Onion talking about these new insoles for shoes to make your feet feel better. Stressed and sore-footed Americans everywhere are clamoring for the exciting new Magnasoles shoe inserts, which stimulate and soothe the wearer's feet using no fewer than five forms of pseudoscience. What makes Magnasoles different from other insoles is the way it harnesses the power of magnetism to properly align the biomagnetic field around your foot. According to the product's website, only Magnasoles utilize the healing power of crystals to re-stimulate dead foot cells with vibrational biofeedback, a process similar to that by which medicine makes people better. This is like less and less parody in this, today. This, this was written like almost 10 years ago. This doesn't seem like parody anymore. In addition, Magnasoles employ, employ a brand new cutting-edge form of pseudoscience known as teranometry. The principles of teranometry state that the earth resonates on a very precise frequency, which it imparts to the surfaces it touches, says Dr. Wayne Frankel, the California State University biotrician who discovered teranometry. If the frequency of one's foot is out of alignment with the earth, the entire body will suffer. Special resonator nodules implanted at key spots in magnasoles convert the wearer's own energy to match the earth's natural vibrational rates of 32.805 kilofrankles. The resultant harmonic energy field rearranges the foot's natural occurring atoms, converting the pain nuclei into pleasing comfort trons. How many of us have fallen for things like that? Because of the promise of something new, the promise of something better, 
the promise of something that is going to give us hope and joy in the midst of our lives where so much of life is disappointment. See, this is why commercials and and even ridiculous things like this are so successful is because we live so much of our life facing disappointment and we're looking for that thing that we think is going to solve our problem, to get us out of disappointment and give us something joyful and and to, to fix what is broken. Commercials manipulate our sense of disappointment. And so that becomes the question for us this morning. What, what do we do with disappointment? When we face those things in life, unfulfilled wishes and hopes, when we experience pain and suffering, things that are going to cause us to say, this isn't what I want in life. I am disappointed right now. What do we do with that? You see, disappointment is a powerful teacher and a powerful leader. It has a way of shaping our perspective and even directing our path. And so the question that Ecclesiastes confronts us with this morning is where is disappointment leading you? Where is disappointment taking you? How is it shaping the way you think and feel? Does the pain of disappointment lead you further into broken pursuits of joy? Or does the pain of disappointment wake you up to false notions of joy to set you on a path to true joy. That, that's the question that's before us this morning. That, that's, that's the struggle that we are going to face in life is when disappointment hits, what do we do with it? Which way is it going to lead us? So that's what we're going to consider this morning from this passage. And so three, three main points here. Uh, the first is just acknowledging disappointment, what that looks like to acknowledge disappointment exists. The second is that disappointment disorients and the third is disappointment directs. And so let's talk about acknowledging disappointment. In verses 1 through 3, the preacher, who is the author of Ecclesiastes, gives us a glimpse into his disappointment with the world. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether his love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Here's, here's the gist of the preacher's observation that's leading to his disappointment. Like he recognizes God. Like he is not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He's not just sort of saying there is no God. He recognizes that there is a God and that the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in his hand. So God interacts with the world in some way. But, but here becomes the question for the preacher. If you simply observe the world Can you detect whether or not God loves the world and loves us or hates us? Like love and hate are before us, but but we don't know. I mean, think about this. I mean, you consider all the good in the world, all the beauty and all the blessing. And and we can very easily jump to, hey, yeah, God loves us. There, There is a loving God. Look at all this good that is in the world. But then someone else might say, well, wait a minute. Look at all the suffering and all the brokenness and all the pain and oppression and evil. And, and, and what about that? Isn't God, if God loves us, why doesn't he stop those things? And so just observing the nature of the world sort of leaves the jury out, so to speak. And that's what the preacher is getting at. I observe the world, and I don't know if God loves us or hates us. And here's the thing that, that sort of drives the preacher's observation the most. 
He's saying that no matter who you are, how you live, you're going to die. Like If you're good or evil, you're going to die. If you're righteous or wicked, you're going to die. If you sacrifice or don't sacrifice, meaning if you're religious or not religious, you're going to die. If you swear an oath, that means you promise and you keep your word, or you shun an oath, that means you're a liar, you're going to die. And so there's this sense that no matter how you live your life, the same thing happens to you. And so another way to put this is the preacher's going, hey, life is unfair. No matter how good I do, no matter how righteous I am, bad stuff still happens to me, and ultimately I still die. God, don't you love me? And we can kind of work back from that. I mean, if death is the ultimate end for living in a fallen, broken world, there, there's another aspect to experiencing death working through the world and brokenness working through the world. We experience pain both physically and emotionally. Like that, that's just a normal experience for everybody. It doesn't matter how good you live your life. It doesn't matter how honest and hardworking and, and, and kind you are. If you've given your life, I mean, Mother Teresa experienced pain and disappointment. She gave her life to loving the poor. It doesn't matter how good you are, pain. All face some sense of loneliness and disappointment in relationships. It doesn't matter how giving and loving you are, relationships are shot through with brokenness and you're going to experience that. All have had the frustration of failure. And you could be a straight-A student, you could be the top athlete, you could be the best at everything that you do. I guarantee, though, at some, somewhere along the line, failure hits, disappointment hits. You cannot escape the reality that we live in a fallen, broken world, no matter how good you are. For all your hard work, for all your playing by the rules, for all your being religious, you will experience brokenness, you will experience disappointment. You cannot escape the mixed bag nature of life. And, and, and why did the preacher, and, and why do we experience disappointment in the midst of such a world? Because we have expectations. Do we not have expectations about how the world should work? About how things should go for us? If I do everything right then things should go well for me. I mean, I expect to have a good job. I expect to have a good relationships. I expect for, for things to go my way if I work hard and if I'm honest. I, mean, I expect if the right political party gets into office, they'll fix things. We have these expectations that things are going to go well for us if we do the right thing. And so the preacher is recognizing that his expectations aren't being met. He's recognizing that there is a gap between what I expect and what I think should happen and what actually happens. And so he's disappointed. And as the great 18th century English poet Alexander Pope wrote, blessed is he who expects nothing, for he shall never be disappointed. I mean, that's one way to roll, right? I'm not going to have any expectations, that way I won't be disappointed. But here the preacher is saying, I have expectations about life. I have expectations about how God should interact with me in the world, about how things should happen when I do my best. And when they don't, I feel disappointed. And so I wonder, for those of you in this room this morning that don't profess faith in Christ, you're, you're here because you have questions. You're, you're, you're here, you're curious. Maybe someone invited you, said they'd take you out to lunch afterwards. But for whatever reason, you're here listening to this message. Let me, let me ask you, where are you disappointed? What aspect of your life did you expect things to go one way and they went somewhere else? Your job? Maybe there's a relationship where your expectations weren't being met. 
Maybe it's that sense of inner peace or you, things you, you would chase after, maybe a philosophy or a way of living life you thought would bring you peace inside, and, and you're in turmoil, you're a wreck, and you don't know what to do with that. Maybe it's you are disappointed with the amount of money you have or where you are in your job as far as you thought you'd be further along in your career or maybe health. Maybe politics, you're just frustrated with politics. I mean, we can make jokes about how we're all frustrated with politics right now, but maybe you feel that very acutely right now. I wonder what it is. Where where did you put that expectation? What, What did you think was going to happen if you acted in a certain way or gave your, your, your time and energy toward a certain thing. But for those of you who profess faith in Christ, let, let's be honest for a moment. How often are we disappointed with life? How often are we disappointed with Jesus? I mean, come on, let, let's be honest here. I mean, for me to vocalize that, you go, Chris, that's blasphemous. Disappointed with Jesus? Can, can we just be honest about where we are? I mean, how many of you who follow Christ find yourself saying, God, this is not how I expected things to go. That this is not how I thought you would interact with me. And, and so, is it possible that you're disappointed with Jesus and his power and control in your life because things aren't going as you planned? Circumstances are not what you would like. And so you're disappointed. Or perhaps you're disappointed that God is making you wait for something. Like you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen, that one thing, and you're still waiting. And so you're disappointed with his timing. Are you disappointed with his sanctifying work in your life, the the work where he is transforming you and cleansing you and setting you free from your sins? Are you disappointed with the time that is taking because you're still fighting sins after all these years? Are you disappointed with his promise of rest because you're still toiling. You still feel like everything is a struggle. And Jesus, you said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'd find rest. And I don't know what that means. Are you disappointed with this church? Because you've been sinned against. You've been whole, horribly hurt. Messy. The promise of community and fellowship and relationship. And all you face is frustration. And so you're disappointed with this church. Are you disappointed because he's called you to suffer through sickness or losing a loved one? Having to look death square in the face. And so let me ask you, are you acknowledging that disappointment? Are you burying it and just trying to grind it out? Because Ecclesiastes this morning is utterly honest about disappointment. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And so we start by just acknowledging our disappointment. We start by saying, yeah, in life I will be disappointed. And so the question becomes, what do you do with it, though? And so there's sort of two directions we can go. Disappointment can disorient us. And so what effect does the preacher's disappointment have on him? How does it affect his perspective? Well, in verses 3 through 6, we see that disappointment disorients the preacher. This is what he writes. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Of course, that's obvious. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And so here, the preacher's disappointment has disoriented him and made him cynical. 
For the preacher, the world is unfair. People are evil. And this has caused a distortion in how he sees God and how he sees God interacting with the world and ultimately how he sees the afterlife. Because here's what he is saying. Because of the nature of the world, because the world is unfair and because people are evil, ultimately the best thing you can do is just be alive because guess what happens? When you die, it's over. Like when you die, you cease to exist. You cease to remember anything. Everybody forgets about you. And so it's better to be a dead dog. The, the picture there is like a, a, a not, not, not your nice little dog that lives in your home, but like a scavenger, like stray dog that like licks garbage. Like it's better to be one of those dogs, like just this scavenger, scrappy little uh, gross thing and alive than a majestic, powerful lion that is dead. And so he sort of pushed all his chips into this. Hey, this life is all there is, and so it's better to be alive than to be dead. Like, that's where he's gone. He's reduced life to just, hey, be alive. Stay alive. That's the best you got. And so he is frustrated with the way life has gone. And so this is basically a fight for survival for him. If this is all there is, then you better do the best you can to stay alive and make the best of it. And part of that means I'm just going to chase after all the pleasure in the world. And so verses 7 through 10, he says, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So it, it's funny because it's almost like he spins this a little bit more positively than this last sentence he hits us with. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. It's like live it up. Enjoy it. Get all the pleasure you can because when you die, when you go to Sheol, the place of the dead, everything stops. No knowledge, no wisdom, no thought. You're done. And so this is a picture of sort of a cynical hedonism. Like, this is all I have in life. This is all the measure that I'm going to get. So I'm just going to chase after all the pleasure I can get. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and here's, here's what happens with the preacher. And here's what often happens with us. This is the end. This is the end result of one who has a transactional viewpoint of life. This is what I mean by transactional. By saying, if I do X, then I'm going to get Y. And if that is the way you operate, if that's what you think is the operating principle of this universe, then of course, this is the end result of that. Because here's what happens. When you recognize that that's not how life works, when you recognize that it isn't just this purely transactional thing, then you're going to get upset about that. And then you're going to start realizing, well, if, if I can't get what I want from God here, then that means God must not love me. And that means there's probably nothing after this life. Because if God isn't going to bless me now when I do my best and work hard, then what difference does the afterlife make? What's, what's coming after I die? Nothing, probably. So I'm just going to get my own this, in this life. I'm going to chase after whatever joy I can get. Who cares about this transactional state? I'm just going after joy and pleasure. And so we become bitter and cynical. And so I, I, let, me, let me press here for just a second. Where is your expectation transactional? 
And, and what are you doing with that when you're hit with the reality that that's not how life works? Is it driving you to just push harder into that transactional state? Okay, I didn't get it last time, and so I'm going to do it again. Like, like I, I, I know if, if I do good, God is going to bless me in this way, uh, and, and I tried it, and it didn't happen. So I got to do it again. It didn't happen. Got to do it again. It didn't happen. At what point do you start saying, I tried this, and this isn't happening, so why bother anymore? At what point do you, do you still have this expectation and maybe you think God's just kind of playing with you and you start to get bitter about that and you start to get frustrated about that? How long before you're either angry and bitter about all the things you think you are owed but aren't getting or you just decide it's not worth it and so I'm just going to go after everything that I can get. I'm just going to go enjoy all that I can and so I'm going to chase after more money I'm going to chase after more relationships. I'm going to chase after more success and more status. I'm going to chase after more pleasure. Maybe chase after some more power. I'm going to do whatever I can to try to control life because obviously God doesn't care about me and so I need to manage my own life, try to find what I can in enjoyment. And that's, that's it. That's the extent of it. I mean, how, how often do we find ourselves moving in that direction when we live a transactional existence? Now, this doesn't have to be blatant anger walking around. This doesn't have to, you don't have to be a blatant hedonist where you're getting drunk on the weekends and sleeping around. It can happen in smaller ways. It can happen in more subtle ways. And so, and so don't, don't just kind of push it to the extreme and say, well, I'm not like that, and so I never do this. Consider the ways that you live a transactional existence and get frustrated when things don't go your way. And what do you do with that? How do you respond Perhaps you're in this place where life just seems cold and cynical. And so you'd agree with the words of Ivan Karamazov from the Brothers Karamazov when he says, it's not that I do not accept God, you understand. It is this world of gods created by God that I do not accept and cannot agree to accept. You haven't abandoned the idea of God, but man, you have issues with how he runs his world. And so your, your, your battle is with the nature of how God has ordered the universe and how we work through that. Just to, just to give you an example, when, when I was in high school, um, I shared, actually shared this with the foundations class, uh, not this past week and the weekend before, but when I was in high school, I, I, this was my Christianity was a lot largely transactional. And this is how this played out. Uh, I loved playing basketball. And, and what I would do is I, I, I believed, okay, God, if I do all the things I need to do during the week, if I have my devotion, if I pray, if I don't sin, if I treat my brother kindly, if I'm great to my mom, you know, all that good stuff, then you'll give me a good game on the weekend. And, and so I found myself doing just like crazy stuff before I played, like re- trying to repent of all my sins, make sure there's nothing between me and God, asking forgiveness to my brother or my mom, just like running around making sure God and I were good so I would have a good game. And guess what happened when I didn't have a good game? God, what was wrong? Or, I must have missed a sin. I must have missed something. And so we get into this really weird space where we're running around trying to either please God and cover every, all of our bases in order for him to bless us, or once we realize when we can't do that, we get angry, we get cynical, or we just chase after pleasure and don't give a flip. So where are you? 
Where, where are you in the midst of recognizing that life isn't just this transactional experience? What do you do with that disappointment? Is it disorienting you? Is it giving you a view of who God is and how the world is oriented that is mistaken, that is flawed, that quite frankly is a lie that you tell yourself over and over and over? And so disappointment can disorient us, cause us to be cynical, cause us to chase after things that aren't going to bring us pleasure and joy, or disappointment can direct us in a good way, in a healthy way. It can actually reorient us to what is true. And so what does that look like? What does it look like for disappointment to redirect us to something better? Well, let's start with this first. Things are not as they should be. Okay? Life is broken. The world is broken. Death is a real thing. Sin is real. That's not how God created the world, but because of our sin, because of our rebellion, Things are how they are. And so we can acknowledge the nature of the world that yes, there is brokenness and there is pain and there is suffering and there is death. And we brought that to this world. God did not create it that way. We brought it to this world. So in many ways, we have to look at our own, look in the mirror and recognize we're the cause of so much of this. And when we start there, when we start to recognize that it isn't this this thing that just sort of happened out of nowhere, when we're, we're, to, we're to blame, then that should orient and start to shift how we approach things. And, and what is it, what, what, what happens when we recognize that our disappointment shows that life isn't transactional? When we, when we recognize that so often when we want it to be transactional, but it's not, maybe we should stop and say, hey, maybe something else is going on here. Maybe the way that I'm approaching things is not the way I should be. Maybe there's something deeper, maybe there's something bigger going on here than just, if I do X, I'll get Y. Look, the world is not governed by karma. It's, God is not this mechanistic, if you insert a quarter, this will come out, Santa Claus kind of God. And if that's how we are approaching Him, if that's how we're approaching life, then we're going to be sorely disappointed over and over and over. But here's the thing. It's good news that God isn't that way. It's good news that God is not this just mechanistic, transactional God because you know what? If he were, then we would all die. There would be no hope because we have all broken God's law. If God was directly transactional with us, we would all say, all right, you've sinned, you've broken my holy commands, and you deserve death and judgment. So we don't want this to be transactional because that ends badly for us. But the other side of it is this. At best, at best, if life is transactional, then we are just left with small joys, imperfect joy, unfulfilling joy, things that we think will bring us joy, but then ultimately leave us unsatisfied and unfulfilled. That's the best we could hope for in a transactional world. And so it's good news that the world is not transactional. And so what disappointment shows us is that we should stop engaging God in a transactional way. We should stop putting our hope in, if I do X, I will get Y. Yes, don't, don't mistake, misunderstand what I'm saying. To some degree, this is true. Like to, to some degree, this, this does operate. You, know, you work hard, you go to school or go to wherever to get, to, to get trained for a good job. There's a good result. Like, be an honest citizen pay your taxes, 
Do, do right by the law and good things happen. Right? There, there, there is a sense of cause and effect here, but it's not the thing that controls ultimate reality. It's not perfect. It's not the thing that, that you can just sort of manipulate to get whatever you want. There's something else going on, something bigger, something greater. And what if that happens to be grace? What if rather than a transactional universe, we live in a universe governed by grace? And, and here's, what, here's what our disappointment shows us. Here's what our tendency towards a transactional relationship shows us. Is we want God to meet our needs. We want God to be on our time. We want God to satisfy us. In a sense, we want God for what he can give us and not for him. But if the universe is governed by grace, if that is the operating principle, grace is calling us into something so much bigger and deeper. Because grace invites us into an actual relationship with God that is living and dynamic and messy. One that is lived by faith, not by transaction. And so if, if you're looking to engage with God in a transactional way, it could be because you just want his stuff and don't want him. As the great uh, children's author, Madeline LaEngle writes, the minute we begin to think, we know all the answers, we forget the questions, and we become smug like the Pharisees who listed all his considerable virtues, and thanked God that he was not like other men. Those who believe, they believe in God, but without a passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. This is what we do when we live transactionally. We want to try to eliminate all the wrestle and all the faith and and all the living dynamic aspect of what it means to be in relationship with God. We just want God to do all the things to make us comfortable and happy. But that's not the way grace works. That's not the way this universe is ordered. Grace invites us into something so much deeper and living and powerful. It moves us away from cheap joy and cynicism into something better. And so what what the gospel calls us to, what our disappointment should point us to, is something not transactional, but grace-filled. And this is the good news, that Jesus saves us from the transaction. Jesus saves us from our cynicism. Jesus saves us from the result of our sin. I mean, if we deserve sin and death, if we deserve judgment because of the way we've entered into relationship with God, and Jesus took that. Jesus took that punishment. He took that shame. He took that judgment so that you and I can know God, not in a transactional way, but in a loving, grace-filled way. To know him as a loving, grace-filled father. One who cares for you. One who loves you and is transforming you and drawing you into something deeper. Not a God who's just say, hey, put in the corner here, pull the slot, and get this out of me. But a God who says, I love you and I purchase you so you could know me. And you could know true joy in me. And that I would cleanse you and get all of that junk and all those other things that you're grasping for joy out of your system. The things that are bringing death to you. The things that are shrinking your soul and hardening you and making you cynical. Like, I want to cleanse you from those things. But the way that happens is by entering into a, a real and genuine relationship. The way that happens is by trusting in grace and letting grace set you free. This isn't easy. 
This means that I have to trust that God is up to something. This means I have to trust that God is in control. This means that I can't manipulate and control God in my circumstances. And so if you want something deeper, if you want lasting joy, if you want something that is transformational at the, at the heart, at the roots, it means letting go of the transactional and embracing grace. It means putting trust in something greater than just your ability. But here is the good news. If there is grace, then there is hope. And the good news is, is that right in the midst of your disappointment, there's Jesus standing there, calling you into something greater, calling you into something more beautiful. Consider this. Paul prayed three times for his thorn to be removed from the flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but it was something troubling Paul. It was hurting Paul. Three times he prayed for it. And what does the Lord say? No, actually, Paul, I know this is going to disappoint you that you have to live with this, but my grace is sufficient and my power is perfected in your weakness. Or how about... I take us to John 11 quite a bit, but how about Jesus standing in the midst of Mary and Martha's disappointments over the death of their brother? But right there, Jesus was going to put on display a greater power of resurrection and a greater hope than they could ever have expected. Right there in the midst of their disappointments, there was Jesus. And if you are in Christ, he is there right in the midst of your disappointment, showing you grace, showing you something greater. Because here's the thing about disappointment. Disappointment points to failure. Like when, I've, when I'm disappointed in something, that means that something has failed. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus hasn't failed. Like this world is broken and this world is sinful, but God has not failed. Like in Jesus Christ, God has brought salvation and redemption and he is going to fix what is broken. God has not failed. Jesus has not failed. So we do not need to be disappointed in Christ. We don't know what he's up to, But we do know this, he's not indifferent and he's not removed. He's right there working grace in your life, working power in your life. He's right there in the midst of your disappointment to point you to something greater. And so the question is, in the midst of your disappointment, are you going to go transactional or are you going to run to grace and find healing and forgiveness and power and joy? Because you're going to run to God for who He is. Now, in conclusion, this is not easy. Look, disappointment is a reality that we all are going to face. We can't escape it. When we try to escape it, that's when things go bad. But we need each other. We need the church. We need the gospel community. We need to gather. We need Christ to reorient us. And that's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we gather in gospel community. We're going to constantly battle and struggle. But there's a wonderful hope in this. There's a wonderful hope in doing these things together. There's a wonderful sense when I can be human and recognize I don't have it all figured out and I can run to grace. So this is writing in the L.A. Review of Books. So Dorothy Fortenberry, who's a screenwriter and a playwright and also a believer, this is what she writes about this wrestle, but doing this as a part of a church community. The single most annoying thing a non-religious person can say, in my opinion, isn't that religion is oppressive or that religious people are brainwashed. It's the kind, patronizing way that non-religious people have of saying, you know, sometimes I wish I were religious. I wish I could have that certainty. 
it just seems so comforting never to doubt things. Those of you who follow Christ, do you follow Jesus so he eliminates all of your doubt and that's why? No, no. I, I agree with her. That, that, is, that, is, that is an annoying thing to, for people to say. So don't say that to Christians. <laughs> well, sometimes I wish I had the certainty of an atheist. I wish I could be positive that there was no God and that Sundays were for brunch, that dead people stayed dead and prayer was useless and Jesus was nothing more than a really great teacher. But I believe too much, at least sometimes, to be certain about that. Sometimes I feel like I believe almost everything the church teaches, and sometimes I feel like I believe almost nothing. But if I'm anywhere from 1% to 99% on the belief scale, my response is the same. If it's more than zero, I should go to church. I love this honesty of this struggle. I'm going to wrestle, even in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of doubt, because I know that this is what I need. Church isn't an escape from the world. My family and I don't go to church to to deny the existence of the darkness. We go to look so hard at the light that our eyes water. Church, this is what it means to engage disappointment, not to try to eliminate it from our lives, but we run to Christ to allow him to reorient us to what is true, to reorient us towards grace. This is going to be a battle for as long as we are on this earth and before Christ returns. So let's run to grace and let's run to grace together. Let's encourage one another. Let's do this, let's lock arm in arm and do this together because we're all weak and we all need each other. So as we gather on Sundays, as we gather in gospel community, as we express our disappointment to one another, as we we feel the weight of that, let's keep pointing each other to grace. Say, move away from being transactional and move to grace. That is a great hope that we get to do together. Amen?